You guys can have a seat. My name's Nathan, and I am a Christian who struggles with pride and anxiety and lust. Hello. How are you guys doing tonight? Man, it's like super, it's like super dark. I can't see anybody. Can y'all raise the light, house lights up a little bit? If I can't see anybody, it's just going to get weird. There we go. What's up, guys? Hey, uh, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, Hebrews? No. We're in Romans. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> I mean, Hebrews is also a good book. You should read it. But tonight we're going to look at Romans 8. And I want to teach you a little bit uh, about a couple of words that uh, you might think are completely unrelated to this, but they do relate, and I'm going to tie it together for us. So in Hebrew, there are two different words. One is called selim, and one is called damut. Can y'all say that with me? All right, say selim and damut. Yeah, that, 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 that damut is good, right? Kind of like damut. It's awesome. All right, so selim means image, and damut means likeness. And for a long time, theologians were arguing about, hey, what, what does, what's the difference between Selim and Damut? Like, is, is image and likeness, like, uh, how, how are we to understand these words? And in a, uh, for a long time, especially in the Middle Ages, people really considered these words to be talking about the immaterial aspects of humanity in relation to the image of God. And so when somebody said, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Then People typically would say, well, we're like God because we have a will and we have reason and we, can, we have emotion, and that's how we're like God, right? And so that, dom that, that train of thought dominated for a long time until about 150-ish years ago, the discipline of biblical archaeology started to, to uh, kind of rise, and we started pulling stuff out of the dirt in the Middle East, which is super cool. And in the midst of doing that, we began to realize, oh, wait a minute, no. The ancient people, when they said words like Selim and Damut, they used them interchangeably. And in using them interchangeably, what they were actually referring to was an actual physical statue, like an idol. So they would say like uh, in, in an image, when they said image, they didn't mean like immaterial aspect. It was very physical. And that's fascinating to me because in the creation account, uh, Yahweh, uh, the, the deity, is like creates the world and he, he forms it and he fills it with his creation. And then he says, now let us make man in our selim. All right, y'all can speak Hebrew, okay, ready? <clears throat> let us make man, man in our There you go, that's what I'm talking about. I bet you the last thing you thought you were gonna do tonight is come up here and talk Hebrew. That's what you're doing, it's awesome, all right? <clears throat> In our, in, in our image and in our likeness, in our damut. And in doing so, what happens is you have this deity who, is, who in his place, the king of that place, plants a garden. And in Eden, which is the king's country, so to speak, he puts a garden, which is in the ancient world is a very divine thing or a, a very royal thing to do. Kings would plant gardens. And so in this, in this area that this king is over in Eden, he plants a garden. And in that garden, which is his place, he puts his images, his physical representations of himself. And then he says, okay, you're not just like stone statues. I'm giving you work to do. I'm animating you with my own breath in your nostrils so that you can work with me. And then he tells us what? Be fruitful and multiply, which is awesome, right? I have four kids. 
I'm obeying the creation mandate, right? To be fruitful and multiply. It's amazing. And so we're, he gives us a creation mandate to co-labor with him in his ongoing creative activity so that he's like, hey, you guys are like my Eden gardeners. So like, get your shovel, you know, let, let, let's, plant, let's plant some more Eden, like, like work the ground. And, and then he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the what? F- fill the land, all of it, fill it with my images, with my statues that are rightly related to me so that they can become Eden gardeners, so that the whole world is covered with Eden gardeners who are gardening the ground in the place of God. That's like, that's Genesis one and two. It's awesome. And yet Genesis three happens where there's a chaos creature and he introduces this different kind of way where he's like, no, actually we can go your own way. You can do your own thing. You can live apart from the animating presence of the deity with you. And we're like, sweet, I wanna be God. We go our own way. And God in his kindness, because he knows, okay, now now you're a dysfunctioning image. And so when you till the ground now, instead of Eden appearing, Eden withers and dies. Well, I don't want you to mess up my Eden project here. And so I'm gonna push you out of the garden, but don't worry, Genesis 3, 15, like one will come who will strike the serpent on his head and the serpent will strike his heel. In other words, I will come and get you I will bring Eden to you. And so starts this long process of Yahweh with his people until ultimately it culminates with another image. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. The the law was powerless because it was weakened by dysfunctioning images who were going their own way and doing their own thing and trying to be their own God. What we could not do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness. There's that word again. In the image and the likeness of sinful man. And so Jesus is incarnated among us in our likeness, but we get a glimpse in his life of what we will be through the transfiguration where Jesus is transformed before them. We get the ultimate picture in Jesus's resurrection where Jesus goes to the cross and dies. And as, a, as someone who is in our likeness, he takes on sin in the sinful flesh and he kills it but then he reverses it through the resurrection. And now his kind of Eden life gets transported into you. So that then Jesus stands in a room with his disciples and in John chapter 20, verse 21, it says, and he breathed on them. That's totally Yahweh in the garden. That's Yahweh with his images like forming the statue out of the dirt, the ground. Giving it nostrils, breathing life into it. And what does he say? He breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. So that now 
Instead of us being in Eden, gardening the ground, spreading Eden, Yahweh has brought Eden to us by his spirit. We become the type of Eden creatures that when we work the ground, Eden flourishes. We become the type of creatures that when we spread over the whole earth, like the book of Acts says, and you have Eden images all over the earth doing Eden kind of things, the thing that breaks forth is the kingdom of God. And the thing that's making that happen is the atoning, the cleansing work of Jesus where he cleansed us and made us suitable images for the presence of his spirit. And now we walk by the spirit. (laughs) He literally says, you, however, this is verse nine of Romans eight, you are ever controlled not by sinful nature, but by the spirit. If the spirit of God lives where? In you. A lot of people are like, what does that mean? This is Paul's favorite description of a Christian. One who is in Christ. One who is indwelled by the presence of God. This is not some metaphor. Like the spirit of God is literally inside of you. Reanimating you physically so that you can, as a physical image bearer of the deity, work in a way that pushes Eden forward. That's epic. This is what you're designed to be. He goes on. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, but your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit, who where? Lives in you. (laughs) C.S. Lewis said, C.S. Lewis said, the son of God became a man so that men could become sons of God. Jesus incarnates like us to kill sin in the sinful flesh, reverse it, and then make us into what he showed us we will be, which is a resurrected life. I mean, I promise you, if if I saw you as you will be right now, I would be tempted to worship you. That that, That is the kind of weight of glory that you as an image of God carry with you everywhere you go. And you have a choice. You can either walk by the spirit and depend on the spirit. And if you do that, then Eden will start breaking out in your life. But so many of us get caught in these things where we're like, yeah, but I need to clean myself up before I go to God. Then why the cross? He has cleaned you. He has done for you what you could never do for yourself. Why? Because he loves you. He pulled you out of the dirt and in, a, and in just a, an indescribable act of intimacy breathed life into your nostrils and animated you with his spirit so that even when you went wrong, he came back and did it again because he loves you. It's crazy too because, man, 
Creation itself is yearning for all of us, the glory that we carry with us everywhere we go. Creation itself is yearning for us to be revealed as sons and daughters of God. For all of the, non, for all of the anti-Eden parts of us to fall away and for us to be restored fully as images of God going about the task of gardening Eden, creating flourishing by the spirit of God who lives in us. So when you're like, well, I can't do it. He's like, no problem. I'm doing it for you. Well, is it all gonna work out? Don't worry about it. The spirit's gonna intercede with you when you don't know how to pray with groanings that are too deep for words. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna instill my spirit in you and you're gonna cry out with son and daughtership, Abba, Father. And don't ever forget this one thing. That neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present or the future, or powers or height or depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If the spirit of God lives in you through the atoning work and the sacrifice of Jesus who has cleansed you to make you a suitable house for the deity, then you are a reanimated image, a physical representation of God who co-labors with him in this world. And all of the anti-Eden stuff and the dysfunction that brought you in here tonight, what Yahweh is doing is setting about by his spirit to convince you that you are a son and daughter of God, that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And if there is any aspect of your life that makes you think or feel or believe otherwise, it is a lie from the chaos creature who wants to convince you that you can actually separate yourself from God. But the spirit inside of us is like, no, I kicked your butt on the cross. And I defeated sin and death through the resurrection so that my images could be restored co-laboring with him in his ongoing creative activity. That is who you are. Without reservation, that's who you are, whether you believe it or not. And so when I asked my friend to come up, when she first did this, I was like, yeah, that was awesome. And so I wanna share her with you guys tonight. This is Cam Close. Cam was in our institute a few years ago. Now she serves on the children's team here. And she's going to quote to you Romans chapter 8. And it's going to be awesome. As she does it, I want you to listen to the role of the Spirit's work in your life, to the groaning of creation who is waiting for all of us to be revealed as images of God, for the, for the intercession of the Spirit and the ultimate reminder that there is nothing you can do that can separate you from the love of God. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, The spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. For the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I am sure that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not the creation only, but we ourselves who have received the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly the redemption of our bodies. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And for those whom he predestined, he also called. And for those whom he called, he also justified. And for those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not... He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or nakedness or famine or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor anything else in all of creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.